Welcome to the Feeling Bookish podcast. In this episode, Rob and Roman are joined by returning guest Greg Gerke. In addition to his latest collection of essays, See What I See, Greg is the founder and editor of the online literary journal, Socrates on the Beach. Greg had originally prepared an audio essay for us to kick off the conversation, but due to some technical difficulties, we ended up not being able to use the recording. We've added a link to the essay in the podcast description. We encourage listeners to give that a quick read before diving into the podcast. And as always, thank you for listening. I was thinking, you know, in terms of um, um, not now as Greg was talking about, but in terms of the 20th century, because the, the strange winds of chance have, have blown me towards reading a lot of um, mid 20th century poetry and sort of riding that that wave the crust of the wave as it sort of built up uh to leave the academy to sort of shake things up you know post william carlos williams um you know with the beats i've just been really reading a lot for some reason and and uh this one guy that i keep coming back to who's just just insane because I'm not even sure if he's a good writer. Uh, he's a great writer. He might not be a good writer. Uh, Bukowski, who's, you know, people love to hate him. And he's uh, not what you would say, what we would call a literary writer. But, um, you know, as he was uh, writing all this poetry, uh, he was submitting them right, left, and center to these little magazines, which proliferated around that time. And it was this this sort of under toe of powerful forces that did not really show up in the big publishing uh, houses, did not show up in the New York Times, in the New Yorker, um, though he did manage, believe it or not, there was <laughs> a bunch of publications that would put Bukowski next to like Jean-Paul Sartre and stuff like that. So, um, but he was, you know, he was unknown and uh, all these little magazines were just all over the place. They were everywhere. The mimeograph revolution, so to speak. Uh, is what they called it, I guess. Um, but it was this really, really uh, pervasive uh, force uh, in American publishing, or at least in American literature or, or, or letters. I'm not sure, but internationally. Um, and it it really uh, almost overwhelmed the, the the sort of the the ruling the class of publishing uh, by the 60s and 70s because they had to start paying attention because that's what people wanted to read. Um, and so I was just thinking, Greg, as you're reading that, it, from my perspective, just being immersed in that kind of reading in the past couple of weeks. Um, and also I was thinking about Mauro. Uh, you, you mentioned Mauro Javier Cardenas that we, you know, we spoke to. Um, on the pod, a wonderful writer. Uh, he he also mentioned something uh, in our talk, he, you know, about switching from the small press to the big press and how uh, almost disorienting it was, um, how different it was. Uh, you know, he went from sort of not particularly being a big fish in a small pond, but you know, for, with a small press. But he went from that to to being a very small fish in a big pond, and he he had trouble getting people to you know, in the publishing, in the big publishing world, sort of to, to notice what he was trying to do. Uh, they're just like, well, he's, you know, interesting literary writer. Let's put him out just for our cred here, you know. 
Go ahead, and it's it's also worth mentioning that that Cardenas, if I I'm not sure his exact specialty, but I think he's a like an HTML coder. So this guy goes to or used to go to an office every day in somewhere in San Francisco or LA, and he has a full time job uh, in the tech industry, and so he he doesn't make anything. You know this this very important writer who I think to your point, you know Greg should 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 be brought in advances essentially you know have a patron um and and he should be nurtured right in one of these large publishing houses even though he's not going to make anyone any money maybe even in the long term but there used to be right a a prestige factor having important writers novelists you know on your your um your lineup so to speak. And so I, I think we we probably shouldn't go on that tangent, but there's a whole tangent about the way writers have to uh, make a living in the marketplace um, is more extreme. And, you know, you wonder if Cardenas didn't have to work nine, 10 hours a day uh, in a marketing, you know, tech job, um, you know, would it affect his, you know, he'd probably have more time to perhaps maybe be more ambitious, uh, be more experimental, um, et cetera. So that's just one tiny thread of, you know, this universe you're, you're poking a bit here, Greg. Um, you know, interesting, if I can just jump in quickly, but Greg, before, uh, just, just to continue with that Bukowski thingy, you know, the way he, he kind of broke through, he was working at the post office, writing all these poems, submitting them everywhere, getting, yeah, actually being published quite a lot. Uh, but he was really getting desperate. He was, you know, he was 50 years old. And then this guy, John Martin, comes along, speaking of small presses, and he starts, you know, Black Sparrow Press. Uh, and he, he comes to Bukowski and he says, can you show me your stuff? And he's like, I, mean, I can't believe you have all this stuff. Let me start publishing you. So he starts publishing Bukowski. And within a short time, because it's, it starts selling pretty well, he offers Bukowski basically a stipend. He's like, I'll, I'll pay you. Uh, a decent amount per month if you just stop your day job and just keep writing because this stuff is great. I think I've discovered somebody great here and uh, people are reading you. And so he supported, I supported Kelsey, uh on basically a small salary, but it was salary. He actually paid a writer uh, not for specific writing, but just <laughs> so that he could stop the day job. Mm. Um, um, so... I, I just think that was that's uh, unheard of nowadays, right? I mean, you don't really hear that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think this kind of leads into. Well, I figured I ha I wanted to pay writers for Socrates at the beach, and luckily enough, I've been able to do that a little bit, and I I think that that does make some difference. Um, it's not a, it's not a ton, but it. Uh, the feedback I've gotten and the, the website was created very easily by me uh, just through Squarespace. I wanted a, a website where it was just the text and nothing else uh, because I think all those sidebars and, and pictures really gets in the way of the reading experience. So I, I wanted to mm -hmm. do that. So, I mean, hopefully I'm giving, you know, I really like, this is what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, 
these writers, I, I love discovering them, uh, like not that they weren't known before, but they're new to me. And, and I hope, you know, a few of them to get their, to get their work out there. Um, I mean, I just took a very young man's a story, uh, for the third issue. So I know it'll be like one of his first uh, publications. So I'm very happy to do that and to promote these writers. Um, so, I mean, I'm getting something out of it right there. That that's, or that's really all I would like to get, um, and to just display their work. Um, you know, Greg, I, I wanted to follow one, um, kind of go to a bigger thematic layer with, you know, your, the issues raised in your essay. And one of them is, um, I had sent both you and Roman a link to uh, a podcast. Uh, it's called Conversations with Tyler. He most recently interviewed um, the artist, painter, and sculptor David Sally, who's a, a fascinating guy, um, a real astute uh, critic of both um, the painting world and literature. And he really talked about the transition um, that happened in the art world from it being an elite um, uh, pastime and elite, it had an elite audience, um, a small world essentially, right? We, we had that division. And of course, after World War II, there became a, a, a kind of um, uh, the common culture, the popular culture and, and elite culture kind of became blurred, right? And Andy Warhol might be a, a, a point of intersection, you know, in the 60s when that happened and you can go on and on and on. But I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are about that idea that um, where do you stand when it comes to, I mean, obviously you, you write books, you have, you know, a literary journal, you want eyeballs on that. It, I mean, is this elite culture stuff trying to come up with trying to um, say something profound with the written word? It is, is it just a losing case to try to expect a common culture or, yeah, what, what, well, what are your uh, thoughts on that vein? I think it's really complicated. Um, I think I'll, I'll go back to that uh, Heracleiton, everything is connected. Uh, I think where we're living and how we're living in, with the viral moment that is really threatening a lot of things going on. And that's, you know, people who, who, uh, grease, grease their, the, the squeaky wheel getting the grease, they, t they tend to stick out. But I've, I mean, I've noticed also that in, in publishing this, there are a lot of people who crave this type of long form work, whether fiction or nonfiction. Um, and the Joseph McElroy excerpt from a forthcoming novel, who, who would have known? I mean, he's obviously he's a big name, but um, it has gotten a lot. It has gotten tons of traffic uh, uh, more than any other piece uh, published so far. So, there are people do know, you know, these artists are are valued. They are underread, but they're they're very valued to the 
community that, that I was kind of mentioning before, the translation community and, uh, and the writing community. And in terms of the, you know, elitism or not, I, it's funny because just this morning I was reading an article on Howard Hawks, the film director, and the writer Peter Wolin, who wrote the piece, connected Hawks with Faulkner, who wrote screenplays for Hawks. Uh, in terms of their reception, they were they were only received by French the French critics, both literary and and film. Sartre wrote the first uh, real appreciation of Faulkner, and the French New Wave critics uh, were all over Hawks, while everyone in this country was you know kind of mystified, and he was even. Peter Wallen was even connecting it to the reception of Jackson Pollock. Uh, so, I, you know, this, this gets me thinking there's a lot of forces at work. And, um, you know, to, we, I think it's, it's very good to get out of this viralness and to, for, I see this a lot on Twitter. Everyone needs to have an opinion about the latest controversy, the, you know, the latest substack about MFAs are bad. That was the latest one. These, seem, these things happen about every week. And, you know, if we can just um, forget a, mm -hmm. about certain things and just go on and celebrate the good and uh, not, not kind of get... I, I see a lot of getting really angry about, you know, some influencer saying that Joyce is overrated or Melville's overrated. And I think energy is, is so much in the negative. But I mean, of course, our, our, the country's, the world's energy is in the negative, And it has been for some year, you know, at least five years. So, uh, you know, the keepers of the flame, there's a, there, we, we need to I think a lot of this is happening in private moments. You know, people crave diff different things. And the type of people who would appreciate talking about, you know, reading for the lusters and the colorations are people who are, you know, just sitting at home reading and, you know, they share it with their boyfriend or girlfriend or, or you know, some family members and go to a museum. And those aren't viral moments. They're just the moments of us living and and seeing how art makes importance art makes interest so uh <laughs> i don't know well what 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 if i were mm -hmm. to i mean let, let's say I, I were to challenge you a bit say you know greg what you're talking about you're talking about um you know cultural chatter that that is online and goes viral but, you know, prior to that, if you were to go to, you know, the village in New York in 1955, or if you were to be at um, a cafe in Paris or Vienna in the early part of the 20th century, you know, you, you had uh, the same crowd, but they were just, you know, arguing um, over, you know, an absinthe um, and, and and saying things like that, saying things that, um, oh, Proust, you know, he's, he's a dilettante, you know, or whatever it is. And, and it would get a laugh or a rise. But the only difference now is, 
as you're suggesting, it's the scale of the messaging and and the platform, right? The technology. We, I mean, it 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 makes me think about the kinds of things that happen in in the most recent election cycle for president you know facebook was was singled out as you know this platform where people were being misinformed but that's always happened i mean i'm from boston where politics was was mm-hmm. about lying and violence and intimidation but i'm just wondering if it's simply the the technology now can scale the the, the conversations or or the propaganda to such a level that it's it's almost suffocating. And I, and I almost feel from you this sense of like, we, we almost need to kind of like have, um, uh, you know, like a, a day each week where we, we, we hide our electronic devices and, and try there, to. Yeah, there is that. Turn the but temperature I, it's down. A, kind of a double edged sword since the pandemic began. And I think that's why social media has become so much so important because we've been locked down for a while and have not been able to, you know, share these things. But I see there's a lot of good happening as well. And, you know, maybe this is because people, even in before this, people didn't sit around cafes, you know, talking about, uh, uh, you know, Proust and uh, McElroy. Not since the 90s, I would say, or the late 90s, early 2000s, that, you know, people are, I've, I see them, they're, they're on their computers, you know, they're doing work. So, I mean, that scene has kind of shifted, I, I think, towards social media. And then, but of course, you have all these factors, the social media persona, are people really saying what they what they want or they're just trying to get a tent? You have to feel all that out. But I mean, I feel like something has been created in the past few years with Janese and, uh, you know, people from Britain, Australia and other places in the translation community. And they've built a lot of, you know, different. There's a lot of energy with beyond the zero podcast and chris via with booktube uh and sub sublunary editions Mm. uh that great you know i think it's about two years old voted to translation right right and and, you know you you make me think greg that and roman and i have discussed this a little bit and it on the surface it could be a an arrogant sort of thought or observation but i think it's just Mm. I, I mean, we are the culture, right? I mean, you're, you, you now have a, a, a journal. You, you've put a book out into the world. I mean, Roman and I have, have a tiny piece of audio real estate where we, you know, shape and, and talk about things. So I think, mm. as you're suggesting, you mentioned Chris Villa, that um, there, there's this hunger and there are these, you know, these people who are just finding ways to... Um, to keep the flame alive, um, which which is an interesting expression, which makes me think again, like, are we, the three of us, the written word, literature, it's been central to our life. Like, it, it's hard to think of, you know, life without these books and how they've made us felt and how they've shaped our view of life. But are we a tiny priesthood? Are, are we, like, 
you know, opera devotees, you know, fanatic people about an art form that is starting to become, you know, archived in history. <laughs> that, that's what I often uh, wonder about. I, I mean, and there's studies about the human brain <laughs> going down. I, it's, you know, superhero movies. Yes, uh, it's, it's a lot to be concerned about when we don't it hasn't but it hasn't the culture always had shoddy kitschy throw yes but now they're the sub at, at, at any point now they're the subject of phd dissertations yeah no, and you yeah, and yeah, yeah. and there's a lot of backlash about oh you're elitist because you don't like superhero movie you know th yeah. that's just craziness and people yeah. will use that and and smart people serious Smart people will use these arguments. So there's a lot of infighting, too. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's very perplexing. Roman, your, your What do you think, here? Roman? Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, have, I, have, I, have, I have too many thoughts, and I, I'm, I'm struggling to narrow them down. I think, I think you guys are right as far as that. It's always been sort of the case. Now it's, it's a little bit more... It's always harder to get your bearings about the present. It's easier to talk about the past because we have some, some, you know, a distance, a, a platform from which to view it, even though it's, you know, might be colored by our own whatever uh, biases. But it's, so it's, it's really, really hard to talk about what's going on because you really have no bearings. So it is very confusing. Uh, I think social media in general is very confusing. Um, there is something to be said about, um, about having, you know, like we, we don't talk about the giants anymore. I mean, I know there's all kinds of problematic things about, you know, the giants of literature and the canon. There's all kinds of issues that have been brought up in the past 20, 30 years. But, but, uh, you know, uh, the average person back in, let's say, again, going back to the 20th century, maybe mid-century would... The average person you meet on the street, you know, who's Hemingway? Of course, they would know Hemingway. They might have even read Hemingway. Um, uh, uh, nowadays, it's, it's, again, maybe because it's harder for us to take a look at what's going on because it's present. Um, we're awash in, in this information. And also, culturally, um, Greg, you mentioned all this, this sort of a liveliness coming from the translators. The translators are really making quite a bit of noise right now, and I'm loving it. I'm absolutely loving it because it's it's beginning to break through the borders. America has been blind for too long, um, and now we're sort of getting this kind of weird global influx of of literature, which is not weird, I guess. I shouldn't say weird, but it's just unusual. Uh, I certainly welcome it but um you mentioned uh earlier i think greg you mentioned about france let's say being more receptive to certain writers um i know philip k dick for instance uh, uh even bukowski uh burroughs you know all those guys um were extraordinarily popular in europe uh germany and france uh i mean I was just reading again about Bukowski, how he appeared on French television. That was a, a very unusual thing for us to even get our minds around, as far as the, as far as this happening. But there's a there was a, a 
a, a French you know, literary show, television show that was 90 minutes prime time on French television uh, of you know, writers, intellectuals you know, debating literature and ideas. Uh, and so they stupidly, idiots, without understanding what they were doing, they invited Bukowski. And he he just completely he was drunk. He requested two bottles of wine. He spoke over people. He interrupted. He insulted people. He walked out of the show. And guess what? He became immediately a celebrity. Immediately, he he sold something like a hundred thousand copies in in a few weeks of his of his books. Everything was just sold out. The you know even though he was rude and whatever crude. Uh, but people had this. I mean, who? who Hundred thousand copies. Um, that means that you know, not just literary types were reading the guy, uh, but you know, your average people. And nowadays, this average is is somewhere else. It's it's attention is somewhere else, or maybe, or maybe literature is at fault. Maybe maybe the writers are at fault because they're not reaching those ears. Maybe they're too fancy, too literary, or something or other. I don't know. Um, but, but there's, there's, there's this homogenation of the culture that's happening right now. And I'm, I'm kind of both liking it and disliking it because it's breaking down borders. Um, there's a lot more translated literature going on. Uh, people, um, uh, reminding us that, you know, we're all enthralled by the, let's say the, you know, the pensions, the, the, the little, whatever, the, the postmodern sort of turn in American literature that we thought was so unique is not unique at all. I mean, people from other countries and other languages have been writing experimental literature for many, many years. We were just blind to it. We just didn't see it. And so we had this American exceptionalism sort of broke into literature. Um, but it's no longer the case. Um, and so... Also, as, as a literary uh, or as a cultural sort of uh, powerhouse that America used to be is now less so. I mean, Hollywood used to have, and probably still has to a certain degree, a, a, a tremendous hold on the popular imagination of the world, not just America. But it's breaking. It's breaking and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's becoming something else. And we're kind of in the middle of it. And so... It's very hard to understand what's going on as as it's happening. Uh, but um, it reminds me of a program. I don't know if you guys, uh, Rob, you might have listened to this living in L.A., but remember Roy of, Roy of Hollywood on um, uh, WBAI, I believe, or one of the KIP. I forget. It was, it was like an alternative radio station, but Roy of Hollywood had a, this, mm. this uh, program called Something's Happening. And I used to listen to it really, really late at night. Uh, so something's happening now. Um, and it's exciting. It's also very frustrating because it's slippery. The now is always slipping out of our grasp. And we can talk about, you know, the mid-20th century, what happened there, late 20th century. But the beginning of this century, we can't really talk about it without uh, either sliding into sort of bitterness of like, oh, the good old days, we, we really understood what was happening back then. But now it's just like, you know, well, things are, are just I, I want to pick chaotic. up on one theme that you said, maybe the writers are to blame. And, and so here, here's a thought. And, and, I, and I hope, Greg, that you, you know, the hair stands up on, yeah. on your head a little bit and you're, gets, you in a, gets you in a fighting mood. But, but here, here's the thought. I'm, I'm going to go back <laughs> to this um, podcast I mentioned with 
conversations with Tyler, interviewing the painter, David Sally. And so the, um, the interviewer is not in the art world. He interviews people from all disciplines and he has this kind of beginner's mind. So I'm listening to this. And at one point he asked a question, which I thought like, what a stupid question, but, but it has a kind of beginner's mind. And he says um, to David Sally, he says, uh, you know, in the, in the 17th century, there were all these great European paintings, Velasquez, Rubens, Bruegel, etc. Um, and, and there are so many talented painters today. And then he asked the question I thought was absurd, but maybe not. He said, why can they not paint in that style anymore? Or, or can they? You know, what, what stops someone today from painting Velasquez? And so Sally kind of puzzles and he says, well, for one thing, artists are trained in such a vastly different way than in the 17th, 18th, and even 19th century. We don't have the training, right? There isn't the apprentice guild situation, right? So that, that makes me think a little bit about the writers uh, uh, at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, they were trained incredibly differently, which essentially means they, they were often given a, a classical reading list that they had to absorb. They, they may have even studied Latin, right, in the case of someone like James Joyce. Um, so that, that's one thought. And here's, here's another thought that Sally had in relation to that question, he said, you know, what would, what would, what would be the reason for a painter today to want to do a, a portraiture like Velasquez? And he says, what would have been in the motivation for it, even assuming that one can do it? Modernism from whenever we dated from 1900 to 1990 was such a persuasive argument. Um, it was such an ex inclusive and exciting and dynamic argument that why, why would you go back? And so this is where I get back to the point of maybe the writers to blame. Uh, I mean, we can read Henry James and we can read Stendhal and we can read Dostoevsky. They're all there. They all did it. It's all there for us to go back and enthrall ourselves with. But I still feel like, unlike in the, uh, in the art world, where there, there has been progression, where people see no reason to repeat what the abstract impressionists did. They may take elements of it uh, in what they're doing today, but really, to David Sally's point, what would be the motivation to, to repeat what has been done? And, and too much of what, if I go to Powell's in Portland and I skim the latest fiction, it's clearly just you know, some personal take or, or some, uh, uh, you know, sort of realistic, naturalistic take on, on, you know, what was done much better, you know, a hundred years ago. So when I think about writing, I think of writing as form and style. And so, you know, one, one thought I'd have for you, Greg, is, is that the problem that there has been no, and I'm sure you can come up with particular writers that would disprove me, um, but I'm talking, you know, more broadly, there just doesn't seem to be progression and innovation in the, the writerly world as there is in the art world. And, I, and I'm happy to be contradicted on that, but your thoughts. Yeah. So I think what it comes back to is, yes, you, you're asking, does the artist, no matter the discipline, know their history? And you can definitely see that today there's a lot of writers on mainly large presses that don't know their history. You can tell that, you know, they haven't, haven't read widely enough. 
And so what they produce is just not that interesting. So, um, but there's that large, large press, small press uh, dynamic uh, that, that I go back to. You know, we keep seeing the same names over and over again, but there's a lot, as we said, there's a lot of things going on that you have to, have to go and search out and find i think that's 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 always been true by the way that's always been true you always had to sort of search for the good stuff it didn't it didn't come up to you you know in the in the mailbox in the new yorker usually um though sometimes it did um but but yeah it's it's something that's that's you know the good stuff i mean i i remember having this almost proprietary feel about certain writers and liking the fact that people didn't really know them and I did. <laughs> so th that's kind of a weird dynamic, right? Cause, cause you do want, you do want as a, as a reader, uh, for sure, you want to share your love of a certain author and you, 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 you scream out to the world, Hey, look at this. Right. But there's a certain pleasure in, in that writer not being very very well known which is kind of odd um but there is a there's a, i mean there's definitely an upswell in the in the small presses it seems like right i mean it really does seem like there's an upswell right now there's a lot of things coming up from the small from the small guys right and i think uh, circling back rob i think i know you're you're kind of looking for who's the real thing and who's the major, where are these major writers? Well, we just might not know who they are right now because of the financial situation of, of things. And they might not have been published or they just might have been buried. Um, Jim Gower's novel Explosives was reviewed, you know, a full-on review, maybe two, two full-on reviews for that book. Uh, but it's you know it's got a a slow steady uh, cult building up under it. Um, but you know, li like I said in that opening, that the old system is over. There's no mid list, and so there there a line has been drawn. And no one, there's going to be no writer writing something defiant or transgressive on any large press that was born after 1970 that's just that's it i mean there might be an exception here or there but there is not that's not going to happen they're going to be on small presses that's where you're going to find them and and so do you to that point you know with socrates on the beach do you also feel the burden uh, of of being a marketer you know that this is a marketing challenge that you 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 don't have a challenge finding oh writers but you have a challenge of you know letting people know you exist and and are you prepared for that is that you know do you have a background to you know promote your, your site or is it too no. much just to edit it you know essentially <laughs> no i mean i i haven't done the only promotion that's done is through twitter my tweeting that the new uh, issue is out. I haven't reached out to anyone 
uh, I mean, I've sent personal emails to people, to writers I know, maybe an, like, you know, the new issue is out, mm-hmm. but I haven't reached out to anything because almost uh, going back to what Roman said, I kind of do want to keep it small. I mean, you know, not like a, not like uh, shielding it from from public view, but I want people who really crave something to find it. And I don't want to like shove it out, you know, Someone did uh, um, mention that they were looking for submissions, a, a big, uh, big website. Mm. But, you know, a lot of what came in through that, I think, w- were things I was not interested in. Um, so I, I kind of, when I d- did this, I was just shocked at the quality of the things that did come in for the yeah. second issue and now the third. It was... You know, if you build it, they will come. Yeah. And it's these people that you've not heard of, the Jacqueline Feldman, uh, Rebecca Ariel Porte, Patrick Farmer, Steve uh, Barbado. Uh, so, I mean, they, they've been out there. They've published many other things. They've been in, in Plus One, et cetera. But um, I hope that they're, you know, they're, setting up to have a new uh, uh, get new readers and you know in all of their cases i i hope to see i think they're going to be having books in the coming years that are going to be really incredible i'm not act i i haven't actively (laughs) done anything because do so much reaching out for my own writing yeah, that it just takes from my soul. It is soul killing. I just can't double up on that. And so I'm just doing what I can. Yeah. And, you know, without getting into too many specifics, if, it, if it's not your cup of tea, I mean, you know, outside of your literary endeavors, do you, do you have a, a quote unquote day job? I mean, how, how does it fit into, you know, quote unquote regular life? <laughs> Well, luckily, uh, I'm mostly just a father these days to my five-year-old daughter, uh, and now she's going to school. Mm-hmm. Luckily, some things have fallen into place that um, I don't have to uh, work, and, and and that's that has set this up to have room, yeah, for, for the the literary journal and and. You know, again, going back through history, it's 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 been instances where people have either time, money, or resources, and then chose to to take a chance, whether it's with their own creative work or a publication or a gallery, or mm-hmm. or to you know to commit to uh, traveling somewhere to do a series of paintings. So, um, yeah, I applaud you for for using the time you do have. Um, and I'm curious, just as somebody who's like you sent out, you know, um, queries and, and, um, pitches and is met with all the rejection that writers do, you must also mm-hmm. start to feel a sense of like, you know, privilege slash responsibility to be the person who's, you know, sorting through this and, and giving people a chance. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, tr I certainly try to and uh, get back to everyone. Um, I mean, I'm the only, I'm the only person doing this. I mean, I, in the end, sometimes a friend or two helps out with maybe proofreading yep. uh, at the last stage, but um, I'm, I, I'm the only person and. Uh, I do. I want to put out something that's very, very high quality, and uh, I, I don't want. I want it to be a certain mold, and I think I've gotten feedback that that's good. If anything, though, there's been some maybe older writers that I think the prospect of being on the web is still a little murky with them in yeah. terms of maybe print journal. I, but, but I really think that the the era of print journals is just about done. Not to say that that's good or anything, but, I mean, they can't even be seen anymore. I mean, even may, maybe 10 years ago, you could go to a Barnes & Noble and see uh, a plow, Mississippi Review right, plowshare. Right, they're, they're, they're gone. Now they're hardly even stopping that yeah. stuff. Yeah. And so... Or Hudson Review, which I think is really good, yep. and I've considered subscribing to it. It's very hard, and so they're going into more online content. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. And and, and I, I mentioned the um, you know the the end of Believer magazine, and when that came out in two thousand three, I, I I can remember that just being a, you know, I would go to the bookstore and look at that, and and just feel like I was had had my finger on the pulse of something. And, and I, I no longer mm -hmm. have that feeling about anything, really. <laughs> right. Well, that could be just a sign of the times. Well, <laughs> yeah. Um, there's all these new things starting in the wake, as we were talking yeah. about. You know, the Believer closes. Yep. There's, you know, there's uh, Sublunary has the permanent literary journal that they're publishing every quarter. Yep. Print, and that's print mm -hmm. issue. So... There's a lot of, of different things there's happening. There's the exacting well. clam from you know, sagging uh, People are getting press. burned out. Yeah, there's a bunch of... A bunch of yeah. Exactly. I think the website uh, Entropy just closed or will be closing, uh -huh. and they were sort of big. But isn't that that's the nature um, of the beast, right? It's the nature so, of even, like, let's say, again, go back to the, the, the one blueprint that I have for what we're talking about is the, the little magazines. They were not built to be long-term solid things though uh, once in a while you would have mm -hmm. something like you know to go, to, to go back to that black sparrow press or city lights for that matter i mean city lights wouldn't be around with that that powerful push uh, let's say of ginsburg ginsburg i think kept them afloat for the first you know five years or so of their existence bukowski made Black Sparrow mm -hmm. Press. There would not be Black Sparrow Press without him. Um, right. You know? Zero Gram is the imprint of Green Integer. Green Integer, yep. you know, has been yep. around for, for me. So Zero Gram's branched out. The books they're publishing, you know, mine aside, the other books are, are quite good. Stephen Moore, uh, Jim Gower, Jen Craig, and Gabriel Gabriel Blackwell's coming up. So, and you know, one one bit of caution that we always have to 
take into mind when we're thinking about like City Lights Press or um, Black Sparrow Press is the economics of, of actually living at that time, 50s, 60s, 70s. I, I once saw a, a chart which blew my mind in, in Roman actually helped me understand how the beats survived. And it was showing how much it was focusing on New York, but you could extrapolate it to the, the wider country, how much your monthly uh, income were spent on either rent or mortgage, or you know, in most cases, rent. It was minuscule. I'm going to make up whatever it was, 5% or something. And now, fast forward to 2018 or whatever, it's something ridiculous, like 47% of people's monthly income is spent on, on mortgage or rent. So it was just so much easier to get by. You know, and, and writers mm. typically, you know, can, can scrape and get by if they feel like um, they're able to do what they need to do. And, and I just think it's so hard. And so that's why a lot of writers are professors, you know, in creative writing programs. So that's, you know, that's been the safest bet to kind of carve out time, but also have, you know, just whatever, health insurance and a car that works and all those kinds of things. So... I think it's important to also just point out how hard it is um, for a writer to survive. And that's why I mentioned uh, Cardenas, you know, as a full-time, you know, Marcom tech worker, um, which surprised me. I, I don't know why it should, but I was really surprised by that. I just assumed that he was a full-time novelist. I, I don't think there's hardly any, you know, outside of obvious Stephen King, you know, Chabon, Franzen. Franzen, yeah, right. I think. Yeah, I think everyone else has to do something else on the side. There, there's nothing. And that's you know, maybe we should maybe we should stop talking about MFAs and writers and talk about UBI and writers. You know, the universal <laughs> basic income. Yeah, it's a much more of a cogent uh, discussion. Uh, uh, the Ray, the, you know, regarding the creative life uh, that could really. Uh, cause a flowering, a renaissance, if you want to use a bloated word, uh, for, for creativity. Because we, we are, a lot of our you know, creative types uh, feel hammered by the society, hammered uh, and pounded from all sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the, that little flower pot that you have left for creativity is just this little sad little thing that's surrounded by all kinds of... Uh, you know, dark clouds. I mean, I suppose it's always been the case in the, in one sense or another. But I just, just, I'm sorry, I keep bringing about stupid Bukowski again. But just because I've been reading about him again. Um, but he, interestingly, he said about all of his the jobs that he had. He he said, you know, you could always, you could always like work at some low level factory job or whatever, and then just quit it because he just had enough and he wanted to just have three days of pulling down the blinds and just not not doing anything but just stewing within himself so he so they could eventually create or whatever. Uh, but then he could always go back and, and get another job. And it was just, you know, yeah, and it was that's, easier that way. That's, and that's my point, Roman, with the economy, right? You, you, could, you could roll into Detroit or Houston in 1971. You could quickly talk to somebody and say, yeah, if you go down to this furniture factory, mm-hmm. you're looking for people for five days. And you would make the money for five days. And then they often used to have these, um, I forget the exact term, but these basically small, these hotels that would, you know, have a shared bathroom in these very small 
sort of rooms and they sort of catered to mostly, you know, single men who were somewhat transient coming in and out. And so you could, you know, flop into these hotels for a week, two weeks. Yeah, the rooming houses. You could, you, houses, that's what, that's Mm -hmm. what I'm looking for. And so, so that's a, a social and economic platform that doesn't exist anymore, right? I mean, there is an informal economy. You could be, you know, an, um, an Uber driver or whatever. But to my point about the cost of living, you know, rents and so forth are just extraordinarily high. You have to, someone has to help you or you have to be just, you know, uh, someone okay. who can, you know, work all day at one gig and then work all night, you know, on your art, which is demanding. Yeah, and the overworked people don't have much time except for quote unquote prestige TV. That kind of blends into that. Yes. So I, the, the TV, which I, I don't see any value in, um, you know, the, the one they're talking about, Succession, I watched 15 minutes of it. <laughs> and it it's see, fine. It's fine. But it's, it's Kent Jones uh, talked about it's uh, film is concision and. TV is sprawl. Uh, you know, in TV, I, there's always haphazard uh, camera movements. And then you have you have you have Gary Steingart working. You know, he's he's actually on the I think on the writing staff for Succession. <laughs> you know, so you, people Uh-oh. get co-opted into that kind of work because it's very lucrative. Uh, you know, very lu- Yeah, um, but, I I would push back yeah. actually a little bit with I I think the, the prestige TV, Succession or whatever you would want to point to. It's it's almost like um, uh, uh, has replaced like community theater where you would go and see some witty ensemble cast uh, in some kind of farcical situation, and, and that's what I think secession is. So I I I don't have a trouble with prestige TV per se in terms of I I think some of it's quite good. It simply it does suck time out of your you know cultural calendar right i mean i would defy anyone to say that outside of twin peaks they've watched any tv series and it's gotten into their soul as much as proust dostoevsky you know to make them contemplate their life to that degree I, yeah i it, i would it, say certainly film has there, there's certainly well, yes film done that. Just, um, just i mean the the, the sopranos to me it's close. Yeah. Uh, the, the one thing about, I forgot where we were just before this, the rooming houses. I, oh, yeah. I, I just wanted to say, you know, don't discount uh, uh, struggling in you know, life and how that can help the writer as well, though. You know, this, this, the whole thing of, and I think people are still, you know, going to a new city and sleeping on their friend's floor for a few weeks. I think that stuff still happens as I think, you know, so many people have to live with their parents right now because of the financial things going on. Um, but I think, you know, this the struggle can, can help one. And what I've heard from all these people that go to... Um, Yado and places like that, they have all yeah. this time that, that usually nothing gets, very little gets done, uh-huh. or it was not what they expected at all. 
Mm. No. Oh, that's funny. And because uh, there's a whole thing about maybe making friends or, you know, eat your meals together sometimes. I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe some people thrive in that and some they would thrive on, you know, working nine to five. I've, I've heard of writers who they get up at five, you know, four thirty five in the morning to get their work done. Even before their children wake up, they have young children. So that might, I think that that helps writing as well. It can, it can be a drag, but it, that really weeds out who, you know, who we should listen to as well. And you know, a lot of times you do your yeah. best work when you're stressed, when you are mm -hmm. out of your, you're not sitting there comfortably, you know, with a warm blanket on your lap. You're, you're, you, the stress, the brings something out. Maybe it shuts down the editor or whatever it is, you know, in the internal editor. But there, there is something to be said about that as well. Uh, that it's helpful, but I'm thinking more yeah. in terms of I'm thinking more in terms of like talking about TV and everything like that. It seems like what I mean, really, basically, what the hell are we talking about? We're talking about good writing, right? Where is it? Where can we find it? Who's producing it? How is how is it done? And good writing is what it's putting down it's putting down something that's relevant, playing with words. It's words on paper on the screen, and then we have, you know, something that's that's kind of pushing that away. Um, there's so many other distractions that are going beyond the word. Again, sorry, I keep doing this, you guys, but the Bukowski mentioned something about, you know, he used to go to bars a lot and that's where the action was because he couldn't just write all the time. He just needed to go right. and mix with people. And something happened in the mid sixties or so that changed that. What was it? TV in the bar. When you bring the TVs into the bar, oh. then people stop talking. They stop interacting. They just watch the ball game. They comment on whatever is going on in the t TV. They might talk a little bit, but it's usually about what's going on in the TV. And so he said that really mm. changed that whole culture. So he stopped getting this inspiration from going to bars. He ended up going to the track uh, to find that kind of you know, horse racing, even though he hated it. He said it's a stupid, idiotic thing to do, but he just wanted to be with humanity. And to see faces and how people would interact, and that's how he got his a lot of his sort of inspiration. But when we're staring mutely at a screen, when there are other universes next to us, meaning other brains that are so much vastly more interesting, even though it could be a drunk, an idiot, or whatever, it doesn't matter. As Joyce said, you know, any anybody is interesting if you just take the, take the time to get to know them and. You know, see what's inside that three-pound universe that they're carrying on their shoulders. Um, I mean, I see it in my own household when we watch TV. As much as it's fun to watch together, you know, you do comment about it or whatnot. But but you're not talking really. <laughs> there's no discussion. There's no fighting. There's no push and pull of two minds meeting, three minds meeting like we're having right now. Um, it's just not. It's just not as much of a happening anymore. And so we are mute we are we have become mute as mm. word users as word exchangers and that, that's negatively affecting that's why you see the literature of the blog post the literature of something that's not no longer playing with words it's no longer 
laying down the line it's 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 something else is 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 a shadow right behind all of it and it's the image um maybe Boris was right about your know, painting being 50 years ahead of writing and now i don't know i i think i don't know where painting is now i don't know where writing is now um it all seems to have this, this whole idea of a, of a, telling a story through images uh has taken over uh, and the images are more important than the story. Um, now we have the, you know, the blockbuster movies, the flashing. Um, and then we forget. We forget, yeah, we forget I, the literary. Like you know, people are the Matrix, the Matrix, this and that. You forget that Philip K. Dick fucking did the Matrix. He invented the motherfucking Matrix, you know? And if you go back to the literary aspect of uh, screen representation, such as the Matrix, it's way more rich, way more poignant and more more meaningful to a person who is actually reading it than watching the flick and being all like, oh, the red pill, the blue pill. I see it now. You know, I see it. It's, you know, it makes sense. That's the way that my world is, well, you know. You know, I, I, I think, Roman, in terms of like, where is, you know, where is the literary world? Where is the art world? I think the art world or the plastic arts, whatever you want to call it, I think the one thing that is embedded in the DNA of those artists is I cannot repeat what was done before. Mm. I, I, you know, I have to know, you know, and, and think about it. They have the advantage of, of museums, right? So they can literally go and they can see this progression, this march through time, right? From, you know, whatever impressionism to cubism, you know, to abstract impressionism. And, and nobody would want to say like, here, look at my take on, you know, Willem de Kooning. It would just be, you'd be laughed, laughed at. So, so that's the question that I keep coming to is, you know, even someone, Ben Lerner, who I think is a important writer, youngish, I, I love all of his books. They're, they're sort of like personal quirky takes on, you know, what's been going on for decades. They're, they're, they're his own. But there is no sense where you walk away and you're just like, I just had my head taken off. Like, I, I can't get my head around that. There's something special here. I don't understand it. Like, dude, I, I, I was looking the other day. I keep going back to um, uh, the Archives Project by Walter Benjamin. And, and there's something compelling. He was onto something. And if you're not familiar with it, he, he was combining, you know, history, literature, social commentary. And it's just these little chunks, these little quotes. Um, so the form of it is bizarre. And it's one of those books you have to kind of learn to read it. And it's also incomplete, you know, a la Robert Musil. So it's kind of weird to deal with a incomplete book. Um, but, but that's the part that I keep, you know, why would we want to just, um, you know, do what's done in the classical music world where, Every generation has to have a new interpretation of the Goldberg variations, you know, which is really cool in a way. If, if you really know the piece, wow, you know, this is very different than what Glenn Gould did in the 50s. But an individual artist's interpretation of a classic is one thing, but to, to just blow the doors off and, and, and move the game forward, mm. where is that? Where is that? Well, Rob, I think if I could just say, uh, I get, I think I get what you're saying and the, you know, taking autofiction, let's say this marketing term for all intents and purposes. Yep. yep. 
even all those writers, or you know, most of them, it feels like even if they aren't on social media in real life, it feels yeah. yes, like you were kind of alluding with Werner. It feels like it, it is their it's their little chunk of kind of a social social media post in a novel. <laughs> Yeah. No, and it doesn't. It doesn't break out into those fractals and and, and other things yeah. that, you know, I would say Christine Scott and Gary L. Lutz, for instance. It's a diff- It's a different ball game because they have this incredible relationship to language. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I get. I, I get what you're saying, but you know, in in the plastic arts. People go to the museum and copy the masters. It's kind of one of the first exercises. You know, to... But it's a training exercise to, to mm-hmm. prepare you for your own expression later in your career. So maybe we haven't, had enough of, we haven't had enough of that in, yeah, yeah. in whatever the exercise would be. Mm-hmm. You know, writing out sentences of the great Gatsby, let's say. I mean, yeah, very yeah. early, it's something, you know, or whatever book, choose your book, Proust, yeah. Faulkner. Yeah, I think, um, yeah. Uh, uh, I was just thinking of, um, oh, goodness gracious, uh, no, who's the Gonzo guy? Hunter S. Thompson used to, uh, you know, had his aspirations to be a writer, and so he, I uh, believe he typed up a novel by Hemingway, something, he just typed it, retyped it. Just, yeah. and I think it's it's a wonderful exercise to do something like that, where you have to go through almost like the motions of producing a work, even though it's not your own work. But if you go through the motions, uh, you get this sort of like a sort of like a tailor. You know, you go to the tailor, and they they take precise measurements, and then you can actually have something that's that fits you. But but you have to first go to the tailor and get those measurements. And that perspective is seems to be gone now because it's uh, it's the the infosphere, if you want to use that ugly word, uh, is 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 um, is is saturated with with a lot so much distraction. There's so much distraction mm-hmm. that that you have to almost be like a like a Zen monk or something and just let it all wash over your brain, but don't get hung up on it. And it's really hard to do. Uh, and then you, and then so you can sort of see the little gems, the the Socrates on the beach, the content there, the content there, this writer, this writer, um, and you build this constellation of things that that you know are are right and true because you know you have a sense of that, and we I think we all have a sense of that, but it's just so easy to get distracted and and lose the thread. So it's it's really. I think Greg, I think really have to commend you for doing this, man. It's 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 um, it's I don't want to say it's a thankless job, but it's it's hard. It's hard to do because you're screaming into the void, and people are like, yeah, whatever, you know, it's just one more thing. Well, it's not one more thing. It's 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 got it's got more of of a more of a cultural cachet. Just we just don't recognize it. A lot of people just don't recognize it. However. Having said that, um, I have this weird mystical belief that good writing will survive. 
it will it will catch the eyeballs that it needs to catch it does it may it may not happen in our decade in our lifetime but it it will happen at some point because you know unless things you know unless we do have an apocalypse um and and things get erased you know um uh somebody at some point will find something in the in the, the message in the bottle and it will spread again um but there is a lot of noise you guys i mean there's so much noise uh i think that's where we're frustrated right i think it seems like there's a lot of cultural noise um and we're we're not quite it's hard to get our bearings in this and and to promote the good stuff um so i don't know i i, don't... I, I you know i want to um we're we're probably reaching our ceiling here and i think maybe one cool thing in light of the conversation we're having is maybe we can just wrap up a little bit with you know a a, a website an author um, a podcast, something that you feel like is is a leading light, because I, you know people presumably feel some of what we're feeling, but you know there is a lot of great stuff out there. So maybe we can just sort of do a round robin. And and you know you've mentioned uh, no- novel explosives, Jim Gower. I, I assume that would be on your list, Greg. Um, and of course, the Feeling Bookish podcast uh, would be there as well. Um, so maybe Greg, can you leave us with? you know, whatever, an author, a podcast, a site, something where you feel nourished and, and people can go to. I think people love recommendations. Uh, yeah. I Well, this new Beyond the Zero podcast that's all about books, they just had uh, Emmett Stinson on, this Australian critic. It's a wonderful show, uh, and they've had a lot of different authors, readers on so uh, I think that's something to watch. I think they just started this year. Really good. Mm. Excellent, Roman. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's always hard for me because I'm I'm just all over the place. Uh, I, I I seem to not exist in my own time for most of the time. <laughs> I'm, I'm in some other decade, some other century. But um, what has come across my eyeballs lately that I really enjoyed is. Um, Olga Zilber, Zilberberg, excuse me for mispronouncing, Zilberberg. Um, uh, she is a writer uh, based in San Francisco. I believe she is involved with Two Lines Press. Um, she published a book uh, uh, just recently, relatively recently, called Like Water and Other Stories. Uh, and I, I had the chance to, um, she, she had it translated to Russian because she's an immigrant and she wanted to publish in Russia as well. And I she sent me a copy of the, you know, the ARC in, in in Russian, and I haven't read anything in Russian so long. So it was a really pleasure for me, a real pleasure for me to just read something in my own, you know, native language, so to speak. Uh, and also the fact that I've just discovered a writer who I really enjoy. Uh, and she's alive and well. She's relatively young. She's hopefully will keep producing things. But these stories are very delicate, very interesting, this interesting connections between the stories they made me pause and think they 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 created a certain mood um maybe it's because i'm also uh, an immigrant from russia and the same same city leningrad st petersburg as as olga maybe i'm feeling that connection uh but for instance uh you know with with somebody like gary steingart who i i enjoyed it doesn't doesn't quite give me that same that even though it's the same background and the whole you know immigrant um context but so with olga zilberberg i just really 
uh, I just really recommend her, her book. It's, it's out in English, Like Water and Other Stories. Um, something to check out. Rob? Awesome. Yeah. And yeah. I would jump in and yeah, I would say um, Deep Vellum uh, Publishing Company, which is based in, uh, in Dallas mm. and um, really excellent publishing house. Um, I think, you know, mostly makes it through uh, patrons, you know, wealthy folks who support their cause. You know, I came into it through the uh, Mexican uh, novelist Sergio Pitol. And so they're the only house publishing um, his work. Uh, he, he has passed on, but George Henson is the translator uh, for those books. Someone who we will be talking to in the future. Yes, yes. Uh, we're excited about. So, mm -hmm. so, so, so Deep Vellum is um, really important. And then, you know, as far as a novelist, not a super secret or super new, but uh, Matthias Enar, who wrote the novel Compass. Um, he's a French uh, novelist. Um, just really excited to kind of watch his career. And um, it was published by Fitzcarraldo Editions, whom I don't know a lot about in terms of where they fit in, big, small, medium, but the quality uh, and the simplicity of, of their um, author list. Is yeah, they've got an excellent mind. list. So, they're, they're very good. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, um, and the reboot, so of, the reboot of Dalkey Archive, right. along with oh, Steve right. We should mention they're, the whole catalog is coming back and a whole there's some new oh, wow. novels and stories coming out as well. And archipelago yep. books, of course, for translation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Absolutely. So you see, guys, I mean, look yeah. look what you just did. We just got suddenly excited and started mentioning names. There's actual activity going on. There's, there's, it's not dead. Things are not dead. Yeah. Things are alive. They're just oh. they're just getting a little bit lost in the in all the noise, you know. So that's that's where we got to keep pushing. But it's it's definitely Absolutely. alive. Um, we're still alive. Uh, people <laughs> might have thought we were dead. It's been so long since we recorded a podcast, but we promise to be back much sooner this time. And um, so we again thank uh, author and editor and publisher. Uh, Greg Gerke for being with us today and, and sharing his thoughts and helping us um, uh, carry our conversation here. And, and you know, Greg, uh, I know you uh, distrust social media, but I, I do know that you're on Twitter and your handle is. Uh, I think it's Greg underscore Gerke. Awesome. And so uh, follow Greg and we are at feel bookish on Twitter. And you can also find us on uh, Instagram as well. So thank you so much. It was a lot of thank fun. You, Greg. Greg. Thank you so much. Really appreciate thank, it. Thank you. thank you guys. It was great to be here. Thank you, Roman. And as always, thank you, Heston Hoffman, for all the behind the scenes stuff as we scramble through our technology. So thanks, everyone. Thank you.